Well, turn with me now in your Bibles to Psalm 8. I want to read briefly from Psalm 8. It'll provide a little bit of context for our sermon passage this morning. That's my go-to phrase. It'll, it'll supply a little bit of context. The truth is, almost half of our sermon passage this morning is a quote from Psalm 8. So it'll actually provide a very large context for our sermon passage today. So in a moment, we're going to turn to Hebrews chapter 2. But before that, let's look together at Psalm 8. Psalm 8, then Hebrews 2. Hear now the word of the Lord. To the chief musician on the instruments of Gath, Psalm David. O Lord, our Lord, how excellent is your name in all the earth, who have set your glory above the heavens. Out of the mouth of babes and nursing infants, you have ordained strength because of your enemies, that you may silence the enemy and the avenger. When I consider your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have ordained, what is man that you are mindful of him, and the son of man that you visit him? For you have crowned him a little lower, for you have made him a little lower than the angels, and you have crowned him with glory and honor. You have made him to have dominion over the works of your hands. You have put all things under his feet, all sheep and oxen, even the beasts of the field, the birds of the air, and the fish of the sea that pass through the paths of the seas. O Lord, our Lord, how excellent is your name in all the earth. Amen. David is very excited. He's very excited because he lives on an earth in which the excellence of God is evident. He lives in a world where the majesty and goodness and glory of God is visible. God is wonderful, and it can be perceived. He gives us a series of ways in which we can see the goodness and greatness of our God. The first in verse 2 should sound, literally, familiar to you. According to John Calvin, out of the mouths of babes and infants you have ordained praise. That means the sounds of babies and infants interrupting worship which is their form of prayer and praise. They cry out for their mother's and father's attention, the earliest human form of prayer. They cry out with enthusiasm and excitement, rejoicing in what they have found or obtained, the earliest human form of praise. Do we not, from time to time, hear the praise and prayers of our people from the babes and infants and see God is wonderful. But secondly, we perceive the wonders in the heavens above and in our relation to them that we are so very small than all the moon and stars in the vast expanse of the sky. We are lower than the angels who, according to the Hebrew mind, dwelled up there among the moon and the stars. The smallness of us as a species, indeed the tininess of us as individuals, 
is a reminder to us of the greatness of our God. That he is far above the heavens and the earth. He is far above the angels. But then thirdly, he notes, yet we are not without significance. Though we are far below the heavenly beings, far below the heavenly angels, far below God himself, yet we have dominion over the creation. We as humans behold the glory of God in all the wise and wonderful ways he works in this world. This is a little fun because we live in Cambridge and you're the Cambridge RP Church. How many of you are scientists, engineers, chemists? Your job, you get paid to study the wonders of this world. You get paid to work with the wonders of this world. And we see firsthand our God is wonderful. But this is all about us. In Hebrews chapter 2, the claim is it's also all about Jesus. So turn over to Hebrews chapter 2. Our sermon passage this morning is from Hebrews chapter 2. And I'll be reading verses 1 through 9. We've looked at Hebrews chapter 1. The author is arguing to his audience, the Hebrews, that Jesus is superior to angels. The reason he is doing this is because the first method or means of revelation to the patriarchs and the judges was indeed angels. They would be replaced by Moses himself and his law, who in turn would be replaced by the Levitical priests, the Aaronic priests, and ultimately the temple. The book of Hebrews will go through that same pattern. But here at the beginning, it's focusing on angels and how they brought about an understanding of God among humans. But Jesus is superior to the angels. And so let's look together at Hebrews chapter 2. Verses 1 through 9. Here again the word of the Lord. Therefore we must give the more earnest heed to the things we have heard, lest we drift away. For if the word spoken through angels proved steadfast and every transgression and disobedience received a just reward, how shall we escape if we neglect so great a salvation? which at the first began to be spoken by the Lord and was confirmed to us by those who heard him. God also bearing witness both with signs and wonders, with various miracles and gifts of the the Holy Spirit according to his own will. For he has not put the world to come of which we speak in subjection to angels, but one testified in a certain place saying, What is man that you are mindful of him? Or the son of man that you care, take care of him. You have made him a little lower than the angels. You have crowned him with glory and honor and set him over the works of your hands. You have put all things in subjection under his feet. For in that he put all in subjection under him. He left nothing that is not put under him. But now... We do not yet see all things put under him. 
But we see Jesus, who was made a little lower than the angels, for the suffering of death, crowned with glory and honor, that he, by the grace of God, might taste death for everyone. Amen. I introduced you some years ago to a member of my childhood church whose name was Mr. Montgomery. He owned a boat, is what I told you last time. And he would take us out fishing on the Hudson River. This isn't the boat like our Mr. Montgomery has. This Mr. Montgomery had a boat with an engine and two bedrooms and two bathrooms and a kitchen and a dining room and two steering wheels, one inside in case it rained and one outside in case it was sunny. It also had two anchors, one at the front and one at the back. And I can remember very vividly one time he cut the motor on the boat and we were there in the middle of the Hudson River and we threw our lines off the back of the boat and we sat there talking and fishing. And there was this little house next to the train tracks right at the foot of a green hill, right there along the edge of the Hudson. And we had cut the motor right across from that house. And I remember looking at that house and thinking, now that's a house, right on the Hudson, right next to the train tracks. I was a little boy, I thought train tracks would have been cool. Didn't think about 3 a.m. wake-ups. With a big, beautiful hill rising behind it, what a great little house. And while we were sitting there fishing, I don't know how long it was, I suddenly looked up to see again that beautiful little house, and wouldn't you know it, it wasn't there. Because the Hudson had kept rolling on. And we were drifting down toward New York City. Now, we didn't get there. We turned the motors on and went back upstream. But the reality is, we live in a world that keeps rolling on. And according to the book of Hebrews, chapter 2, verse 1, if we don't pay attention, we will drift away. My friends, if we don't return to the gospel of Jesus Christ on a regular basis, if we don't come back to the good news of who Jesus is, of what Jesus has done, we will drift away from him. We will leave that point that is fixed and drift off into sin and into sorrow. And so the sermon for us this morning to the Hebrews who are listening is that we would know and believe that Jesus has done everything to save us. That Jesus said it is finished and he meant it. It's done. Jesus has done everything to save you. So friends, pay close attention to him. Jesus has done everything to save you. Pay close attention to him. Notice in verse 1 that the first word we are given is therefore. This is a logical sequence or application of the point that has been asserted in chapter 1. 
In chapter 1, the author, the preacher, has said through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit that Jesus is superior to angels. He has something more going for him. His name is more excellent than their name. The name angel means servant, means messenger. They came and they served. They came and brought messages. But Jesus' name is son. Jesus' name is heir. He comes and brings forgiveness of sin. He comes and brings salvation. He comes and brings adoption into the family of God. He is superior to the angels. Therefore, because this principle is true, because this fact is true, let us pay more close attention to what we have heard. Let's be more attentive to Jesus when we read our Bibles. Let's not get wrapped up in the messengers who have brought us Jesus. Let's get wrapped up in the Jesus who was brought to us. There's a great illustration of this where within the diversity of different human experiences, you give gifts. And some of you like to give them in really nice packages with really nice wrapping. But don't get so obsessed over the wrapping that you forget to actually get to the gift inside. This is what the author is urging us. Don't get so wrapped up into the nuts and bolts of the word and works of God that you actually miss the point of creation, which is Jesus. That you miss the point of scripture, which is Jesus. Let us give more close attention to the things we have heard, lest we drift away. We often get distracted with the cares of this life with the burdens of getting through the world, and we drift away from the point of life, which is Jesus. We get so wrapped up in the stories, the songs, the poems, the grammar of the gospel, that we drift away from the point of the gospel. And so we have this warning at the beginning, the application. If Jesus is superior to angels, then we should pay more close attention to Jesus. Now, to establish this application, the preacher gives to us two reasons for doing it. The first reason begins in verse 2. The second reason begins in verse 10. For the sake of time, I'm going to preach the second reason next Sunday. Make sense? So next Lord's Day, come back. We'll do verses 10 and following, and we'll get the second reason. The first reason that we'll focus on today is verses 2 through 9. Which begins with the claim that if the word spoken through angels proved steadfast and every transgression and disobedience received a just reward, how shall we escape if we neglect so great a salvation? Now this is an argument from the lesser to the greater. The Holy Spirit is saying to us Hebrews... That we can't go back to the angelic revelation of the patriarchs. For even that word which was trustworthy and true and disbelief was proven punishable has been eclipsed. It has been replaced. Something greater has come. First this principle. Was the word of angels proven true? Well, we have two angels who come into the city of Sodom one night. And they say to Lot and his house, This place 
is going to burn. What happened the next day? It did. The word of the angel was true. What happened when the angel appeared three times to the prophet Balaam? And said to him three times, you will not curse Israel. You will bless Israel. What happened? He blessed Israel four times. The word of the angel was proven true. What happened when the angel showed up in the temple when Zechariah was offering sacrifices? He said, there will be a son and his name will be John. And there was a son and his name was John. The word of the angel was proven true. But so too, disbelief was punished. You see, when Lot went to his sons-in-law and said, this place is going to burn, what did they do? They laughed. They laughed that night. You know what they did the next day? They burned. What happened when the angel said to Lot and his wife and his daughters, flee and do not look back? And Lot's wife disobeyed the angel. She looked back. And she perished with Sodom and Gomorrah. What happened when the angel says to Balaam, do not curse Israel? And three times he is confronted and said, don't curse, bless. And in the end, after four times blessing Israel under the sovereign power of God, The man still concocts a scheme by which to seduce and corrupt Israel with the prostitutes of Baal. So that Moses and his followers have to kill him. And he dies by the sword. He disobeyed the blessing of God for Israel and perished. And so too, Zechariah, when he says to the angel, I'm too old. Elizabeth is too old. How's that going to work? The angel says, it's going to work, and you're going to be mute for the rest of the pregnancy. Do you see how severe this is? That the word given through these angels was true. And those who didn't believe it, they were condemned. And they were destroyed. But how much more the word from Jesus. That he who is truly salvation. That if we neglect so great a salvation, we have no other hope. There's nothing else to turn to. There's no plan B. If we're going to be saved, it's going to be saved by Jesus. And if we neglect Jesus, there's no other way to go. Friends, you have numerous examples. And I plead with you this morning... Do not neglect Jesus. Pay close attention to him. Get to know him. Who is he? What has he done? The rest of the passage, not surprisingly, for the third time in a row, consists of telling us who Jesus is and what he has done. There are four statements about who he is and three statements about what he has done for a total of 
I said I was going to stop looking at him when I said that. <laughs> For a total of seven, the sign and number of fullness, the complete revelation. For the third time now, the sermon from the book of Hebrews, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, has been designed specifically to communicate to us. Pay attention to Jesus. Believe in Jesus. Center your focus and your faith on Jesus. So first, who is Jesus? We must pay earnest attention to Him. We must not neglect Him. But who is He? We are told in verse 3 that He is a great salvation. He is the Savior. The one and the only. There is no other one. Jesus is the Savior, the great salvation. What makes him so great? Four statements as promised. First, which at the first began to be spoken by the Lord. The greatness of this salvation lies first and foremost in the fact that Jesus himself, he is the Lord here, who spoke or declared the reality. When he came into the world, he said very openly and publicly, I am the way, the truth, and the life. He said very publicly and openly, I am the Savior. I am the Christ. He declared himself to be the means of salvation. What makes this so great? None of his predecessors ever did. No prophet from Adam to John ever said, I am here to save the day. Every single prophet throughout the Old Testament, right up to John the Baptist, preached, one is coming, one is coming, one is coming. Jesus preached, I have come. He is the great Savior. He announced it. He declared it. Let's study him. He is the Savior. Let's pay close attention to what he said about himself. When you do, you'll find that he is a master poet. The vast majority of the things he says about himself when he says, I am the Savior, are metaphors. I am the shepherd. I am the door. I am the light. I am. Full stop. He is the one who declared to us first who he is. And this makes him the great Savior. But secondly, what he has said was confirmed by those who heard it. Perhaps the Holy Spirit here means the twelve apostles. That is, those who traveled with him for three years, hearing all that he taught, and then recording it for us in the Gospels and in the Epistles. Perhaps they mean here the New Testament, which comes out of the apostolic ministry. This now written legacy is left for us as a confirmation. Jesus said these things. Jesus did these things. The greatness of this salvation is confirmed. It is sure. There were eyewitnesses and they left us an account. Perhaps it actually means the 72. The disciples. Or the 120. Or even, according to 1 Corinthians 15, the 500 who saw him alive after the resurrection. Perhaps by this, the Holy Spirit is reminding us 
that what he did with Jesus was not done in the dark. It was not done in some corner. It was not obscure. There are apostles who bear witness and confirm Jesus is the Savior. There are disciples who followed him and bear witness Jesus is the Savior. And we have this legacy. Do you pay attention to him? Do you pay attention to the record of the apostles and the disciples who together confirm this is who Jesus is? He's the Savior. But then thirdly, God himself bears witness both with signs and wonders. Perhaps the Holy Spirit here means those signs and wonders which Jesus did. That he in his earthly ministry, through the power of his Father, did many signs and wonders. He showed himself to be the Savior. Because he put his hands on unclean people. And they became clean. He nodded his head at a legion of demons. And they fled from his presence. He spoke a word in the street miles from the dying child. And the child was healed that very hour. He demonstrated with signs and wonders that he is the healer of the body. That he is the driver out of darkness and demons. That he, by sign and wonders, is the Savior and has done everything to save us. But then fourthly and finally, we are told by miracles and gifts of the Holy Spirit. Perhaps by this, the Holy Spirit speaks to us and reminds us of the Pentecost that came in the book of Acts. That through various miracles and gifts, not only was the power of Jesus to be the Savior of the world manifest in the way he lived on earth, it is manifest in the way his church lived on earth. That they too, in following him in an earthly ministry, Manifested the power of God in their presence, performing various miracles, exhibiting various gifts. The Spirit came upon them with power, and just as Jesus' own earthly words were confirmed by the Father's expression in signs and wonders, so the apostles and the disciples' earthly words were confirmed by the Spirit's presence. Now this makes a pretty strong case. Yes? Who's Jesus? He's the Savior. The one and only Savior. How do you know? He said so. And his Father agrees. And his Spirit agrees. And we have right here this tremendously Trinitarian statement. That three together in one voice declare, Jesus is the Savior. It's who He is. But in wonderful, beautiful, RP style, this text is sung in four-part harmony. Not only does Father, Son, and Holy Spirit all agree... So does humanity. So do the followers of Jesus. The church of Jesus Christ. We join the triune song of salvation. 
where Father, Son, and Holy Spirit sing out into the world, here is the Savior, and we sing with them. We sing with them. Four parts together in harmony, bearing witness, Jesus is the Savior. This is a great salvation. A salvation that is complete and total, lacking nothing. A salvation that is most sure, most confident. I remember being asked by someone who loves numbers and pays close attention to them, what percentage sure are you of this doctrine or that doctrine or the other doctrine? And I gave some very high numbers that were less than 100. This pleased him greatly. Because to claim 100% certainty would be God. My human fallible mind is restricted to 99%. One day he asked me, of which truth or doctrine am I most sure? And without hesitation, I said, Jesus. There is greater evidence in this world that Jesus is the Savior of sinners than that you exist. Don't believe the modernists. There's more proof that Jesus saves sinners than any other claim. Father, Son, Holy Spirit, and all the followers of Jesus together testify and sing. He is the Savior. It is a great salvation. This is who he is. But what is he doing? What is he doing in the world? Three things, beginning in verse 5. He has not put the world to come of which we speak in subjection to angels. Maintaining this motif, the preacher, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, says Jesus is superior to angels. For they do not rule over the world that is to come. That is, the new heavens and the new earth, where righteousness dwells. Jesus, rather, is the one who has been enthroned in heaven high in order to turn this estate of sin and misery into the new heavens and the new earth. He is not only ruling over the present age as king and head of the church, he is not only ruling over the present age as king and head of every nation, whether they acknowledge it or not, he is actually ruling over both church and state in order to bring about the kingdoms of this world becoming the kingdom of his Lord and of his Christ. He is ruling to the perfection of this world. That the world might become the world that is to come. This is of which we speak, says the author. This is the last epiphany I had in studying this text. I had worked out every other detail, what I wanted to say to you, how I was going to say it. And then this morning I was looking at verse 5 and I saw the phrase, of which we speak. And I went, I totally skipped that in all my preparations. And yet, I think that is probably the most pivotal part of the passage, isn't it? He actually has just declared to us the main theme of his discourse. He's talking to the Hebrews, to the churched people, about the world that is to come. And he's warning us, if you're not willing to live in this world like Jesus is number one, you're one and only, you're not going to be ready for heaven. Because everybody in heaven is really excited about Jesus. Because he is the one and only in heaven. The world that is to come is Jesus' world. It's in subjection to him. He rules it. He governs it. It's all his. It's all about him. As the Apostle Paul would say, 
All things are through him, for him, by him, in him, from him. How many prepositions would you like the Apostle Paul to use? The point is, it's all about Jesus. He's the great salvation, and the world that is to come is his world. So what is he doing? Three things, beginning with with Psalm 8. He is becoming human. According to Psalm 8, there is a man, indeed a son of man, who has a special relationship with God. God is mindful of him, and God takes care of him. We know from the original context in Psalm 8, this is true of all humans. David, in singing Psalm 8, is not singing about a particular human, but rather singing about the whole of humanity. That we, as creatures in the image of God, have a unique relationship with God that no other creature has. God has a particular care for us that he doesn't have for cats and dogs and salamanders. Sorry. He loves them. He made them. He takes care of them. But you're different. You're special. Secondly, he says that they're a little lower than the angels. By that, he means earthly. We don't dwell in the heavens like sun, moon, and stars, like angels. We dwell on earth. Nevertheless, while on earth, we are crowned with glory and honor because we have a special office. We are the caretakers of creation. All things are put in subjection under our feet. This is the original sense of Psalm 8. That we as a human species rule over the creation for God's glory and good and their good. At which point, Psalm 8, like all the law, condemns us. Hey guys, we are, according to Genesis 1, the under-shepherds responsible for the flocks and herds of God's creation. How have we done? How many species have we slaughtered to extinction? Or near it. Psalm 8 condemns us. We're not good caretakers of creation. We are undergardeners of God. Responsible for the green growing things. That the world would be full of beauty and life. How have we done? What have we done to the forests of this world? What have we done to the waters of this world? Psalm 8 condemns us. And yet, Psalm 8, as the law of God condemns us as being rather poor caretakers of creation, offers us this shining hope, this good news. The Holy Spirit grabs Psalm 8 and says, you know how all of you, as a human race, were supposed to be God on earth, made in His image, living righteously and holy, so that the creation would thrive and be beautiful and glorious, and you fell short. Well, guess what? There's one guy who's made up for it. There is one son of Adam. There is one human being who has come into the world, and everything's under his feet now, and it's going to be okay. Very famously, Martin Luther 
was spending an afternoon planting a tree in his backyard. This may be apocryphal. And a member of the church came by and said, Dr. Luther, if Jesus were to come back tomorrow, if you knew that, what would you be doing this afternoon? Would you be planting a tree? And he said, yes. Because if Jesus came back tomorrow, the fruit from this tree would be fantastic. Jesus has come to make this world wonderful. This is his work. His work is to save the world, to save those who are in it, this fallen humanity. Jesus is the Son of Man who has a special relationship with God. He has been crowned with glory and honor in order that he might rule over this sin and misery and make of it a new heavens and a new earth. The works of this world have been set under Jesus and under his feet, that he might bring about glory and righteousness. The second thing that the Holy Spirit would have us know, though, about this work of Jesus, that it is the work of a human, a human to care for the creation and to make it perfect, is that we do not see it. It is not only a human work, it is an invisible work. We do not see Yet, all things put under him. For though the Holy Spirit testifies, all things are in subjection under him. The weather is under Jesus' control. The neighbors, the co-workers, the friends are under Jesus' control. The politics, the economics, macro and micro, are all under Jesus' control. The trees and the flowers and the grass, they're under Jesus' control. The traffic lights are under Jesus' control. The tea is under Jesus' control. All things have been given into Jesus' authority in order that he might bring about the new heavens and the new earth. But we do not yet see those things under his control. There are two reasons why we do not see this. The first is his operations, his means, are invisible. Jesus himself taught us that the kingdom is within. Jesus isn't interested in behavioral modification. Jesus isn't interested in external coercion, conforming this world to his standards. Jesus is about taking dead people and making them alive. That's something that starts within and works its way out. We are told through the Apostle Paul, that we are to work out what he has worked in. It is an invisible operation. He is making the new heavens and the new earth. He is making all things new, but he's doing it from the inside out. It's a renovation that is internal, spiritual, that we do not immediately perceive. And so it takes faith. It is a faith that sees Jesus in heaven. I was tremendously impressed and pleased with Tom's conclusion to his pastoral prayer. He was using words right out of my sermon. He was using words right out of Hebrews. Give us faith to see Jesus enthroned. We do not see Jesus wearing a crown. We do not see Jesus sitting in glory. We believe it. We believe this is the work that he is doing in the world. We believe that all things are beneath his feet, even though it doesn't look like it. 
Even though it looks exactly opposite. We look at our marriages and our children. We look at our jobs and we look at our nation. And we say, you know, the last thing I see is Jesus ruling. But he is. And we must believe it. The second reason we so seldom see the kingdom of God coming in our world is because we look in all the wrong places. The last thing that the Holy Spirit testifies to us today, the third thing we must know about the work of Jesus on earth is that we do see Jesus a little lower than the angels. That is human. We do see Jesus taking to himself a true body and a reasonable soul. We see him embracing humiliation, sacrifice, and service to others. We don't see Jesus exalted. We see Jesus humiliated. We see him suffering death that is crowned with glory and honor. You know why we don't see Jesus ruling and reigning? Because he ruled and he reigned from a cross. And we don't look for kings on crosses. Do we? We don't look for eternal life in a tomb and in a grave. Yet he suffered death. Crowned with glory and honor. The very darkest day in the life of Christ is the very brightest day in the life of every believer. For that which was a curse for him is blessing for me. For that which is death for him is life for me. For that which is a grave for him is eternal life for me. That which was his hell is my heaven. This is the work of Jesus. And it's why we don't see him ruling and reigning. Because he rules and he reigns through the gospel. He rules and he reigns putting glory and honor on that which is ugly and ashamed, naked and broken and beaten. That he, by the grace of God, see there it is. The engine of the kingdom is grace. It's goodness and favor and love. That he who is cursed and sacrificed and shamed might be life and life everlasting. That by the grace of God, he might taste death. The Holy Spirit in using the word taste death reminds us that that death was not permanent or perpetual. That death was tasted for a weekend. That death was real. That death was complete. It was a true death, but it was a taste. He conquered death. He destroyed death. He rose again from death that we with him might enter into the new heavens and the new earth. And the Holy Spirit says at last, for everyone. Are we universalists? What does everyone mean? Like a good Calvinist, I can turn to many other passages in the New Testament and show That everyone means everyone whom he calls. Everyone whom he has elected. Everyone whom is his sheep. Everyone for whom he died. Everyone who believes. John 3.16. Whosoever believes might be saved. There are plenty of New Testament passages 
to qualify everyone to mean everyone who is to be saved is indeed saved through Christ. Why doesn't the author qualify it here? Because of the most important point in the text. Jesus is the great Savior. That's indisputable. Here's the real question. Is he yours? Jesus is making a new heavens and a new earth where righteousness dwells. Jesus is saving sinners. That's indisputable. Here's the real question. Is he saving you? You see, the problem that we get into when we get into a big fight over whether universalism is correct, it's not. Or whether God is sovereign and has chosen whom he will redeem, he has. Is that we have missed the point of using the word everyone. It's not meant to communicate every individual human. It's meant to communicate, is it you? Is he your savior? Is he saving you? That's the sermon. Jesus has done everything to save you. Are you paying attention to him? Are you neglecting him? He's done everything to save you. Do not neglect him. Pay attention to him. Pay close attention to him. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, we give you thanks for this beautiful day. We give you thanks for this beautiful passage. We thank you for the great riches of Christ that are here. The joy of knowing him as he is and for knowing what he has done and is doing in this world. Father, open our hearts to receive him. Open our minds to understand him. And Father, work faith in us that we would rest upon him alone and receive him as he is offered to us in the gospel. Father, persuade and enable us to embrace embrace him. And may we this week, O God, Walk in the knowledge of him and in the joy of his fellowship. This we ask in his name and for his glory. Amen.